This is a 980 CKNW podcast. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, host of this program. Joining me on the line is Dr. Lene St. John. She is the mama behind the Mama Sutra. And the truth is, humans are sexual beings from cradle to grave. Parents don't and should not stop being sexual once their children are in the picture. And that so often happens. And parenting is difficult, and it's very challenging to stay connected as lovers. And if you're a single parent, you might be trying to find the next right one. And then maybe you think you've got it all figured out, and your child starts asking you the sex questions. Well, I'm so glad that the Mama Sutra, Dr. Lene St. John, is here to answer that question for you. Good evening, Dr. St. John, and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. This is a difficult question. I've had parents myself say, can you talk to my child about sex? And I'll say, you know, these are friends. (laughs) I'll say, well, you have to be in the room with me. And they're like, no, no, I don't want to. (laughs) It's such a difficult subject. Yet children, more than ever in the sexualized world in which we live, need to learn about it. And the best people for that process to begin, that education to begin, is their own parent or parents. So how can parents become comfortable talking to their children about SEX? <laughs> well, you know, it is, it's absolutely true. What you said about parents asking you to have the talk for them, it happens to me. And it's just, you know, one of the things that I think is sort of funny about this is that there are, there are just so many parents who just want to have somebody else do it for them. And sometimes the trouble with that is, you know, seeking someone who might not necessarily be educated in sexuality, but, you know, just kind of a sex enthusiast. And that's not necessarily the best, the best source to push them to. So in order for parents to get comfortable, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn too much here, but uh, I wrote a book that a book to help parents understand why it's important to talk to their kids about sex. And I I use research and I use my own examples and, you know, the, the whole goal is to try to illuminate or bring a light to what kinds of messages we get in society and culture and everyday life and not all of them are great. And, you know, I have, I, I'm sure you have this too, parents who come up to me and say, you know, I've, I want to stop my kid from being able to access this kind of stuff, this porn or, or whatever on the internet. So I'm putting all these blocks in, putting all the, you know, the browser locks and things. How do I stop it? How do I stop it? It's like, well, what if it's not just the internet? <laughs> what if the source that your kids are getting these sexual ideas and concepts are from the playground, you know, from watching TV, from Instagram stories or, you know, who knows where it's coming from these days. That's and, you know, getting comfortable is, is definitely, you know, something I think can help with reading the book, but also reaching out and finding a sex coach um, or a you know, sex educator um, to try to help you walk through, you know, what your blocks are about the topic. 
Exactly. And I want to plug your book. It's the five building blocks to having the talk with your kids (laughs) and recognizing teachable moments. And I think it's an important read and it's a great read. The other thing I wanted to point out, you mentioned sex enthusiasts who are educating your children about sex. But you know what? There are also people who aren't that excited about sex, may have had a trauma in their background, a history of sexual abuse. And so they may give the messages to your children that sex is dirty, sex is bad. You don't want to have sex. It's overrated. And so we have to be very careful, as you say, uh, about pointing out, um, you know, the important messages about sex and the appropriate, accurate, up-to-date information. And I think the work that you do as a board-certified sexologist, sexuality educator, and parent coach is critical. And we need more people like you um, so that we have fewer issues around sexuality and, and power and unhealthy balances of power in relationships. Um, so right. you, in your great book, uh, you've also got a, a free chapter, um, an introductory chapter. Right um, so tell exactly. us a little bit about yeah, that. I've, I've, yeah, right now I have the introduction chapter to my book available online that you can download and just get a taste of it. If you haven't read the book yet, this will give you just a little sample of what my book is about. You know, I think... As adults, you know, we, we do this thing where we sexualize a lot, of <laughs> a lot of things that aren't necessarily sexual, like hugs and, and just regular touching. But, you know, I think there's, there's kind of an unintended consequence behind talking to our kids about sex when we just focus on talking about sex. And I think we're missing a huge opportunity to talk about things like dating, love, relationships, you know, all the stuff that should in a normal, you know, flow of how things go should eventually lead to the sex part, right? Absolutely. And I think that's, that's kind of a, a missed opportunity to, to not talk about this, those things that are important too. And that's also what, you know, what my book with those five building blocks, um, they kind of make it easier to break things down into bite-sized pieces that don't necessarily have anything to do with what parts go where. Absolutely. Kids usually glaze over when you talk to them about the physical aspects of sex, and then they (laughs) run along and whatever developmental age is, they run along and do whatever they're going to do. Uh, I just want to mention that the free chapter is is on your website, Mm themamasutra.net, and it's Read Me, a Parental Primer Chapter. So what would you suggest to somebody who... Uh, their first child, so of course they have been mollycoddled to the max, which is what occurs these days. Um, you know, they swallow a quarter, they're brought to the emergency department, they look for it in the stool, this this one, versus the third child who gets the quarter deducted from their allowance. Um, so it's a, a parent <laughs> who's very nervous, very anxious about raising their child perfectly, they don't want to say anything about sex, and then at seven comes home and says, hey, guess what? Uh, we were talking about sex in school today or, or how, do, how do women have babies? Um, how would you advise somebody who's not comfortable with the subject to answer that question? Well, when someone is not comfortable, it's, I mean, it's totally okay to not be comfortable with the topic, right? First off, I just want to acknowledge that because there are plenty of people who didn't get a good conversation themselves. So the question is sort of like, where do I begin? right? And I think often we, we think we have to know everything 
right off the bat, and that's not always the case. Like I said, if we didn't get good info, we don't necessarily know what to do or, or what to say. So, you know, giving yourself a little bit of grace there, but then also looking at what's happening. So if, if a child comes home and says, I heard, you know, a boy pees inside a woman to have sex, you can obviously say, well, actually, that's not true, <laughs> you know, and, and give them proper information. Um, sometimes parents, when, they, when they're nervous, when they're scared, um, they don't think about the question that's being asked, and they, they shift their focus to things like, how do I prevent my kids from getting this information in the future? So they might, kid might say, you know, uh, where was I born, or, or how are babies born? And the parent might think, well, who asked that question? So they can kind of limit the access to that kid or that source to them so they don't have to deal with that, right? Right. Um, but yeah, I guess the big thing about being nervous or being anxious is just to, like, <sighs> take a couple deep breaths because you know, there's a lot of people who feel the exact same way. And, you know, finding a resource or finding someone who can help you unpack whatever that nervousness is about. It could be, you know, past trauma. It could be simply not knowing what to say, right? So just getting some help to unpack that, but then also giving yourself permission to just take a breath and be like, <sighs> Exactly. <laughs> Go wash the dishes and I'll let you know later. And then I'll read your book, The Five Building <laughs> Blocks to Having the Talk with Your Kids and Recognizing Teachable <laughs> Moments, a book for parents who crave candid reading on how and when to start the conversation. And this way, if you order this book, you will learn how to create a warm and non-judgmental environment free of guilt and shame and taboos, which infiltrates sexuality in today's world, in this over-sexualized world, so much. Dr. Lene St. John, yeah. thank you so much for joining me and for your incredible work. Thank your you. website is? Thank you. TheMamaSutra.net. That's right. And that's straight from the Mama Sutra herself. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Maureen. You're welcome. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. As you know, I'm a registered nurse. I am always looking for solutions to help you live an improved quality of life. Many people get chronic conditions, especially as they age. And so you can imagine my delight when I found out about the TheraCycle, which is actually uh, a, a company near my own hometown in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, joining me on the line so graciously is Rich Blumenthal, and he is with TheraCycle. Good evening, Rich. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing tonight? Mike? I'm fine, thank you. So the TheraCycle, as you say, has the power to move you. And as we know, movement is so beneficial. Exercise reduces stress. It improves bone health. It helps with cardiovascular issues, mobility, mood. There are so many benefits. But many times people will get a chronic neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's disease or MS or other neurological disorders, which makes movement difficult for them. You guys have the TheraCycle. So tell me a little bit about the TheraCycle, what it is. Sure. So um, thank you for having me on. And the TheraCycle is a stationary bike that's motorized. And the motor does two main things. It helps somebody to move at a pace or a speed that's a little bit faster than what they can generate on their own. 
And secondly, it helps them to maintain that faster speed or cadence. And the result of that, for many of the people that we work with, people living with progressive neurological disorders and other general mobility issues, is that as they're aging, they're having a a decline, a slow, but it's a, it's, a, it's an overall decline in strength and stamina and weakness. And many of these people are still exercising, but they can exercise at the rate and intensity that they did previously because of something like Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis or maybe a stroke. And so, so the, the th- motor helps them to get up to a faster speed. Okay, so the TheraCycle was specifically designed to help people with movement disorders like Parkinson's disease, but it sounds like it works on other neurological disorders as well. And so why why Parkinson's and how does it help Parkinson's? Well, we know that Parkinson's is a slowing disease. And for years, we've seen people with Parkinson's, Maureen, have all sorts of symptom improvements in terms of their gait, balance, stamina, strength. And about 10 years ago, there was some research that came out from the Cleveland Clinic with this concept of forced exercise that proved that when somebody with Parkinson's is forced to push or excuse me, cycle at a faster speed, they're able to have neurological improvements that they can't get with a traditional stationary bike. So we know that the increased speed is a real important variable, and that's what the TheraCycle helps to provide and really seems to help these people with a neurological disorder. And exercise is often recommended. It's, and in fact, I hear from my patients, uh, exercise is the only thing that I can do, so I'm doing it um, to help with my Parkinson's disease. That's, that's a great point, and most of the people who I think demonstrate interest in our TheraCycle are people who have led an active lifestyle, and despite their diagnosis, they're still exercising. But unfortunately, as you know, at some point, their symptoms gain momentum, and they become more challenging and defeating. And that's when the TheraCycle is well-suited to kind of come in and help someone who might still be ambulatory, independent, and exercising, but they clearly are having some overall decline in strength, stamina, and just their general mobility. They're not disabled but they clearly can't do what they used to. Right. And so what are some of the physical things that may improve? Like, would somebody's blood pressure be reduced? Will they lose weight? Are there some other benefits um, in addition to feeling good and getting back on the bike um, to patients who use the TheraCycle? Sure, sure. Um, I think most frequently the things that we see are, you know, the people in the kind of older population that we're working with, they're improving their walking and gait. They're improving their balance. They're improving their stamina, so they have more energy. They're just moving more fluidly. We tell, people tell us that I'm falling less if people are having issues with balance. They're moving better. If someone's using a walker, maybe they might be, go more go back to the cane instead of the walker. Um, in addition to that, they have improvements in sleeping habits. They have um, improvements in circulation, so they reduce stiffness and rigidity, and they tend to move more fluidly. Um, and I think they also just have a much better um, kind of overall mental health outlook because they really feel like they've kind of regained some of what they've lost. And they feel like they're doing something, um, in fact, to help themselves along, along the pathway. Um, and many patients, it's my understanding, have reduced Parkinson's disease symptoms, or they may delay uh, the more severe form of the disease by using the TheraCycle. Now, it's interesting, the TheraCycle um, goes, it's an in-home motorized physical therapy bike. So are we going to see these at the gym or uh, are people buying them for their own home? Well, the majority of our sales are to home users and it seems to be very well suited for the home user because many of these people with a um, mobility issue have difficulty sometimes getting out. Um, we do sell to um, clinical settings, but it's a smaller portion 
of our outreach efforts. So the large majority of our focus is really helping somebody who has Parkinson's MS, maybe a stroke victim, so that they can use the bike and have it there. Um, and if they're not feeling well, they can still have access to, to this productive form of exercise. And they can also use it in different ways. They can use it just for five minutes in the morning to kind of jumpstart their motor and get moving. Or if they're feeling kind of groggy and not moving well at the end of the day, they can get on for five minutes and have a stamina boost. So it's really assistive to them, and it's almost kind of woven into their fabric of the lifestyle and be able to have something that's right there in their home. Absolutely. And so how much uh, is this going to set somebody back? <laughs> how much does it cost? Well, we have a couple. We have a few different, we have three different models of the TheraCycle. And the model that we sell most frequently is the TheraCycle 200. And that unit runs for $4,799. That's US dollars. But you know, we have a um, it's a it's a real investment for our customers. We have a 30-day trial period when you buy the bike. We ship it to you for free. And our take on this is use it for a month. If for some reason it's not if you're not moving better in 30 days, if you're not doing better than the day you bought the bike, then send it back. Okay. But we know based on our customers' experience that they have a great time with the bike. Right. And and that's about the time within a couple of weeks, you know, even a few days you start feeling better if you've been off of the exercise exercise plan and, you know, getting back on it. Even after two, th- two or three days, your mood's better, you sleep better. Uh, do you ship to Canada? We do. We ship to Canada Excellent. regularly. And, um, you know, we have, we've been doing that for years with success, and we have um, customers all over North America and internationally who use the TheraCycle. And, you know, we're just trying to help people who have some type of a mobility issue um, continue to their, to fight and exercise in the way that they want to. Right. And and the other thing is these are being put in homes. Um, is it limited just to somebody who has a chronic neurodegenerative disease or can healthy people use this? No, anyone could use a TheraCycle. And it's really common for us to sell to somebody who's living with MS or Parkinson's and they'll have um, a spouse who just will use the TheraCycle also because they just want some gentle exercise and just because there's a motor, um, the, the TheraCycle goes anywhere from 1 to 15 miles an hour. So at 13, 14, 15 miles an hour, that's a pretty fast clip, and there is resistance on the TheraCycle when you push against that motor. So anyone can get a great workout on the TheraCycle. You can be as passive and gentle or as assertive and forceful as you'd like to be when you're using the TheraCycle. That's excellent. And caregivers, oftentimes caregivers face tremendous stress when they are helping to manage the lives of those people with chronic disease. And so they can actually get uh, down or depressed or um, feel like it may impact their mood or it may impact their sleep if they're very stressed. So I love all of the benefits um, of the TheraCycle, not only for the person with the chronic neurodegenerative disease, but also anybody in the household. I mean, we get a lot of rain here and snow in Canada. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just can't go out, but you can hop on your TheraCycle. Rich yeah. Blumenthal. Similar to us here in Boston. Yes, exactly. The weather prevents a lot of us from doing things. Um, well, Rich Blumenthal of TheraCycle, thank you so much. The website is theracycle.com. I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Maureen, for having us on. You're very welcome. And uh, this is Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night health show. Next up, we're going to be talking about sex after. 
This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Joining me on the line is Tally Rosenbaum. She has a master's degree in clinical sociology and counseling and a certificate in mental health studies from the University of North Texas. She's an individual and couple therapist and is certified as a sex therapist by the American Association for Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, as well as the Israeli Society for Sex Therapy. She also co-hosts a monthly podcast with Rabbi Scott Kahn called Intimate Judaism. Thank you so much for joining me on the line, Tally. Thanks so much for having me, Maureen. I really appreciate uh, appreciate this because sexuality and intimacy are so critical in relationships, in marriages. One of the biggest issues that uh, people present with in my clinical practice is how can they be intimate with their loving partners after abuse. Why is this such a problem for people? I mean, I understand that it is a crime uh, for children, innocent children who have been sexually abused by oftentimes by somebody they know. What's the impact on their intimate relationships later on in life? Well, I think you're asking some very important questions. I I share the experience with you that um, many couples come in and what is underlying their difficulties in intimacy has to do with the history of trauma or of sexual abuse. Um, I think it's important also to point out that many couples who go for sex therapy because they're experiencing difficulties in their sexual functioning don't often necessarily connect their difficulties with experiencing pleasure, experiencing a satisfactory sexual life with the fact that there was uh, a trauma history or a sexual trauma history. Um, Often that it is um, repressed or it hasn't been dealt with or, you know, the connection just hasn't been made. Um, So that's something to keep in mind that therapists need to also keep in mind that when when people come for sex therapy, what can also happen is that some of the sex therapy interventions that are being um, advised to clients can actually be quite triggering to them if they have been um, exposed to traumatic experiences. So that's an important thing to know. The other thing that I want to just point out is that sex can be a triggering experience for anybody who has a history of trauma and not only sexual trauma. In other words, anybody who has, um, and PTSD is somewhat on a spectrum, but anybody who has some aspects of post-traumatic stress disorder, which can include a lot of difficulty with emotional regulation, um, difficulty letting go and relaxing, even if their trauma has to do with combat or has to do with a terrorist attack or a car accident, that can affect their ability to let go, to trust, to feel safe and secure enough because Sex involves um, experiencing the opportunity to feel joy and pleasure and satisfaction and get turned on, and in order to go on that ride, which can feel like kind of a risky ride, you also have to be able to feel safe. So people with, who are wired um, in this kind of hypervigilant way because of traumatic experiences 
will have difficulty. But if you've had sexual trauma, then it's going to be even more triggering because many of the aspects of sexual arousal will be familiar um, to to the experience, will, will actually trigger certain words, certain smells, certain feelings, certain places of being touched. There's so much that is similar to the traumatic experience of sex that even though the context is completely different, even though on a rational, cognitive, intellectual level, the person is choosing the experience and wants to have a sexual experience and knows that they are now with a consensual and safe partner, the trauma, the, the part of the brain that allows us to survive is more primitive. And that part of the brain doesn't know that. That part of the brain is threatened when it's triggered and goes into a fight or flight response. So that's one of the reasons why sex can be such a triggering act. It brings back um, the memories. It can be accompanied by traumatic responses. Some of them are um, flashbacks or some of them are um, complete dissociation. There's a fight or a flight or a freeze. And many people go through sex in a frozen or uh, what we call disassociated state. I know that was a mouthful. I said a lot. No, that's great. Lots of information there. And, you know, as human beings, we long for intimacy and we actually are wired to connect. And so this kind of rails up against this um, experience uh, that that a person may have had as a child, this traumatic experience. And so instead of associating physical intimacy with pleasure and connection, what are some of the emotions uh, that that can be triggered by sex? How would somebody potentially feel in a loving relationship? It's very very confusing because you're right that we are wired to connect. And if we grew up with healthy, safe, and secure attachments and our parents, you know, pretty much did their best to fill our needs or most of our needs, and we weren't objectified and abused and, you know, their sexual needs or the sexual needs of somebody who we loved and trusted were not gratified through, you know, through, through our bodies, then we are wired to connect and to trust the person with whom we're connected. In other words, a normal and healthy developmental process, which includes a healthy sexual developmental process, will allow people to feel like they can create relationships, engage in intimacy and sexuality with a certain sense of trust, a knowledge that they'll be heard, um, that if they say to their partner, you know, this doesn't feel good, I would want to stop. Um, do you mind if we don't do this? Their partner is going to respond in a positive way. That's what normal development is going to produce. If, on the other hand, um, the person who you love, and, and by the way, many, many cases of child sexual abuse uh, do happen um, by uh, a known person who is an older sibling or a parent or a step-parent. And so if the person who abused you is a person who is supposed to be taking care of you and protecting you, then that is going to completely um, sabotage the normative and healthy feelings that um, you will create and develop around trust and around arousal as being something that has to do with safety and pleasure, rather arousal will be connected with um, not having a choice, 
um, feeling threatened, feeling objectified, um, feeling icky, um, you know, and, and, and feeling very, very confused and shamed. Um, often there's a great deal of shame because the arousal responses often kick in because of how we're wired physiologically. So any kind of childhood sexual abuse experience um, or even a domestic violence. I mean, we, I see couples who have been abused. Their abuse began in the relationship itself because of the demand for non-consexual um, sex and the, um, the um, feelings that, you know, whether it's created culturally or religiously or socially, that um, the partner is unable to say no. And this can create an abusive, um, traumatic response to sex in the relationship even later in life. Absolutely. And we, we only have a, a minute or two left, but um, healing from sexual abuse is is extremely difficult and challenging. And I understand, and especially according to your blog, Tally's blog, that it's a journey. So what would you recommend to somebody who has, has experienced this trauma as a child, the trauma of having been sexually abused as a child? Where do they begin? Well, I think that what... Where, where we begin, first of all, is with a lot, with a great deal of self-compassion and self-awareness and validation. And with this self-awareness, what we're able to produce is the ability to um, become aware of what triggers, what the triggers are, and how our body responds to the triggers. So, being able to um, learn to predict or to feel when something is beginning and know how to learn methods to soothe that. In terms of the healing journey, it really requires being able to change the script. In other words, your script has been that sex is something about which you have no choice. Um, And often there is a great deal of negative feelings around sex. It's dirty. I'm dirty. Um, There's a feeling of shame around my sexuality, my body, my gender. uh, Sexual abuse really affects the self and so many different aspects of the development of the self. And often that needs to be completely rebuilt and redeveloped through changing that narrative about sex um, looking at sex in a different way as something which is consensual, which is autonomous, which at every moment you have, you only should do what feels good and anything that doesn't feel good, you are completely in control of. Um, and having a lot of permission to be able to take back your body, your sexuality, um, and heal it, these are very important steps. I want to point out that these are often very difficult for for not only the person who has been abused, but also the partner. We've got a partner. Um, you may seeing that the partner who may not be patient, who may be having a lot of unfulfilled sexual needs, and this needs to be addressed because often just the mention of the partner's frustration will already be triggering to the client um, who's been abused because. They just hear that frustration and already their body goes into a fight or flight. Already that means that my partner has a need and of course I need to fulfill it. There isn't even a pause that allows them to take a breath and say, okay, um, why don't I validate my partner? Why can't, you know, can, can I contain and 
you know, deal with the guilt and realize that this isn't my guilt. I don't need to feel guilty, but I can feel compassion for my partner. So this requires a great deal of teaching the couple how to differentiate, how to be able to see one another as two separate people with separate experiences. So there are a lot of aspects to treatment. Um, behavioral sex therapy, just giving sensate focus or giving exercises without going through this very important process, which can require a lot of different modalities. Sometimes it's a combination of somatic types of therapies. Um, Sometimes it's psychodynamic talk therapy. And there's the aspect of couples therapy. And there's being, you know, and and if we just kind of give exercises, sex basic sex therapy exercises without bringing in these really important aspects. Um, and sometimes it can even be a, a, um, you know, a multidisciplinary type of team working on this. But you know, a very good individual and couples therapist with trauma training and sex therapy training could handle the case as long as it isn't only behavioral therapy, which, by the way, can often be triggering in itself. Absolutely. Well, that's so much great information. Thank you so much. I would love to have you back. I do want to mention your book that's coming out in November, I Am For My Beloved, A Guide to Enhanced Intimacy for Married Couples. Thank you, Tally Rosenbaum, sex therapist. You're welcome. I co-wrote the book with my um, part with my uh, co-author, Dr. David Ribner, and um, it is a book about um, intimacy for married couples. We wrote it specifically for the Orthodox Jewish population, but we think that um, couples throughout the world can benefit from it, especially um, couples in, from traditional populations. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much. I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. This is the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I want to talk about a very serious and important subject. Domestic violence causes brain injuries, and people are saying that not enough people are talking about it, which is why I want to talk about it. Research suggests between 19 and 75% of domestic violence survivors sustain a brain injury. And in the face of growing public awareness around concussions related to sports, Advocates say domestic violence also carries a significant risk of a brain injury, yet receives far less attention. I say to so many women in my clinical practice, if a man hits you, it is time to go because he will hit you again and it is not worth the risk. By the same token, if there are women and it's much less, um, but I will give the teeniest amount of attention that it deserves, uh, if there are women who can physically overpower a man and you are hitting him, Sir, it's also time for you to go as well. Um, People carry the damage with them for years after leaving violent relationships. Um, You know, and, and it's never, ever normal for somebody to hit you. I don't care what excuse they give you, what apology they give you. Physical violence in an intimate relationship is wrong and it's criminal, quite frankly. Um, People can live with memory problems uh, afterward that uh, maybe somebody thought was from PTSD. But in actual fact, you should be screened for a brain injury, especially if somebody has hit you. And, uh, you know, if, if you get injured when you're playing sports, you know, people take this so seriously. But, you know, we look askance at people who are in 
uh, relationships where there's domestic violence. We say, why is she staying? And, you know, because her life is at greater risk once she leaves, the moment that she leaves. And that's why it's important that women support women in this um, arena and to have a better understanding and understand for the person themselves that if there's any hint of physical violence in the relationship, you risk your brain health, which is really important. And to, to actually recover from a brain injury is extremely challenging. Research suggests, as I mentioned, that between 19 and 75 percent of domestic violence survivors suffer a brain injury at the hands of a partner. Domestic violence is so wrong, and the public knowledge around brain injuries is is so far behind the little that is the little awareness that's raised around domestic violence. We, you know, after a woman uh, is hit by her partner, or you know, hit on the head, hit in the face. Um, one can suffer significant brain injury. There's something called a coup contra coup, and if the blow is hard enough, your brain actually bounces to your skull back and then to your skull again, and that can cause severe, severe head injuries. Women can experience memory problems, headaches, dizziness, fatigue, and nobody will ask about those particular symptoms, even those who work directly with survivors may be unaware of the signs of traumatic brain injury or TBI. And that's according to a recent survey of frontline workers by the Acquired Brain Injury Research Lab at the University of Toronto. And you know what? There's a, injuries actually make leaving more difficult. We have so much education that needs to be done and knowledge that needs to be transferred um, you know, the, one of the other issues is I've described to you that coup contra coup type of brain injury, but part of the problem is that brain injuries are often invisible. And, and the research demonstrates that domestic violence injuries often involve the face, the head, the neck. Nobody's going to hit you at your knees, although they may knock you off your, um, you know, off your stand. Uh, they may knock you at your knees and you can hit your head on a wall or something. So that increases the, the rate um, that that happens. Um, they also, um, abusers often hit their victims around the hair because that will um, allow or, you know, you can't see it. That way it's easy to hide an injury. So if you don't see a bruise, you won't see the swelling. And um, so you've got to ask, especially if you're a physician or anybody who works in the domestic violence field, you need to ask about possible brain injuries. And there are symptoms, as I mentioned, headaches, vision problems, forgetfulness, extra sensitivity to light and sound. And you, you need to do this um, and prior to referring them to a doctor and they need to see a doctor so that this can be assessed. Leaving a violent relationship in the face of physical abuse is not as simple as opening the door and leaving. It, it's a detailed safety plan that is required, which is much harder when remembering something as simple as a phone number becomes difficult. And so when, when you need to put together this strategy, this strategic plan with people as to how and when you're going to leave, um, and you can't remember parts of it, you can imagine how problematic that is going to be. At your executive function, which is your organizational skills, are harder to run, and it's harder to make decisions as well. 
It's just another layer of domestic abuse that really complicates an extremely complicated situation already. We need tremendous amount of injury. Think about this. If somebody comes to you and discloses or um, you see that they have a bruise on their face, treat them with compassion and empathy. Show them that you care about them. Never judge them because that's what it is. People feel that other people are going to judge them or judge their partner. And so this is not about judgment. This is about care and compassion and improving public awareness with information uh, about that uh, the fact that people can um, suffer brain injuries and what they look like. Now, um, there is some an online tool because every year thousands of Canadian women experience intimate partner violence, IPV, IPV, which causes disabling, may cause disabling permanent traumatic brain injuries. And so you can actually go to abitoolkit.ca um, for some help, for some understanding on this um, and to see if brain injury is also a part of your terribly sad story, um, which I'm, I, you know, just feel it's just such a horrific um, situation. And so they, they started ABI, um, abused and brain injured, to draw attention to the widely unrecognized intersection of intimate partner va- violence and traumatic brain injury. And we're just trying to, imp- they are just trying to improve the lives of survivors as well as the working environment for frontline workers. So it's a toolkit. It serves to provide information, resources, research, and practice recommendations for providing trauma-informed service delivery to help you live a better life. Um, so that's abitoolkit.ca. Head on over there if you or anyone you know is experiencing issues as a result of having been hit by their intimate partner. And as I said, thousands and thousands of Canadian and American women experience intimate partner violence, and it's never okay. Um, I hate to end this on such a, a sad note, but I think it's an important note as well. Um, the more information we have about things that can happen to people, the better. Anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure being here with you this evening. You can always email me anytime, nursetalk at hotmail.com. Um, you can go to my website, which is um, going to be, it's, it's on the way to improvement. Uh, I'm working on it. And, you know, I, every time I say that, I feel like, oh, I've released a little dopamine there. And maybe that means I'm satisfied or happy with it. And uh, so I will delay getting that website done. But no, no, I'm not um, that um, that's, that is something that's in, in progress. Um, I'm on Twitter as well at back the number two, the bedroom. Did I say my website is back to the bedroom.ca? Nonetheless, it's back to the bedroom.ca. And, um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I post a lot on LinkedIn and then I write a longer version, uh, over at my blog at 50 shades of pink. Um, someday they'll all come together, hopefully soon. Um, I'm also on Instagram, so you can follow me on Instagram. I am Maureen McGrath, sex, what am I, health, health sexpert. That's what I am, health sexpert. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so all of that, and you can always tune into the show, which I really appreciate you're doing. I love all of your emails, and I, and I try and respond to every single one. If you have any questions at all for me about the Kegel Throne, the Womanizer, um, how to actually increase sexual desire, I have another YouTube video coming out soon about uh, low sexual desire 
and uh, infidelity and just a slightly different perspective on that. Uh, everybody's going to take a little responsibility in the world. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show here on the Chorus Radio Network. Until next week, have a wonderful week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.